Now, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the uh, book of Ruth, uh, picking up our studies in Ruth. So you have Joshua Judges Ruth, and then uh, we're reading chapter 1, uh, from chapter 1 and verse 6. Chapter 1 and verse 6, Ruth chapter 1 and verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you might find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Well, you will remember from our first study in the little book of Ruth, this man Elimelech and uh, his wife Naomi, and his two sons, Malon and Kilion, migrated at a time of famine to the land of Moab. And that might seem to us a reasonable thing to do, but you've got to remember that the land, the land of Israel, was part of the covenant promise that God made to his people, made to Abraham and his descendants. And to leave the land was to leave the covenant. And uh, it was an act of recklessness at best and disobedience at worst for Elimelech to move his family out of the, the promised land. 
And uh, his intention, at least initially, was to go short term. But after at least a period of 10 years, uh, he's still there. He dies, his uh, two sons die, and that leaves Naomi uh, and his two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. Evidently, too, Elimelech was a, a wealthy man, but the years in Moab were very harsh to the family. And she says in verse 21, when she returns, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Uh, it was a, a bitter experience to be away from God and his people for this particular family. Now, widows, particularly poor widows, were very vulnerable in the ancient Near East. Employment was out of the question, and many widows were driven either into slavery to sell themselves as slaves or into prostitution to sell their bodies. Now, in Israel, God had made a number of provisions for widows to look after them and to protect them, one of them being that they could share uh, in the sacrificial food that uh, the Levites could share in, and another rule was that they could glean in the fields after the harvesters. And that may be the reason that precipitated Naomi's decision to return to Judah since she had heard that the famine had ended. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Under the provision of the law, they wouldn't starve. They would be protected, at least to some degree, and looked after. So all three, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, set out for Bethlehem, but only two arrived. You can see that from verse 22. And they, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. Orpah turns back to Moab, but Ruth continues with Naomi to Bethlehem. Now, what I want us to do this morning is just look at these two women and the choices that we, they made, Orpah and Ruth. One went back, the other went forward and accompanied Naomi to Judah. Notice, first of all, the privileges they shared. We're introduced to Orpah and Ruth in verse 4. Uh, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. We know from chapter 4 and verse 10 that Ruth married Malon and Orpah married Killian. But they both were Moabite women. Now, the Moabites were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. They were the product of the incestuous relationship that he had with his daughter that we're told about in Genesis 19. Not a very good start. But more than that, you remember when the people of God were traveling back uh, to the, the promised land, the king of the Moabites, Balak, hired Balaam to curse the, the people of God. More recently, the Moabites had invaded uh, Israel and they had annexed the city of Palms, that's Jericho, and occupied that territory. So they were the traditional enemies, if you like, of the people of God. But the Moabites were, were more than that. They were not simply the enemies of Israel, they were the enemies of God. 
In Numbers 21 and verse 29, we read, Woe to you, O Moab, you are destroyed, O people of Chemosh. So just as the uh, people of Israel were distinguished as the people of Yahweh, so the people of Moab were known as the people of Chemosh. Now, Chemosh was another name for that Canaanite fertility god that we looked at in our first study, Baal Peor. In fact, Peor was a town that was located in Moab itself. Now, I mentioned in the worship of that uh, fertility god, what happened was that the worshippers would engage in sexual immorality in order to uh, arouse the passions of uh, Chemosh or Baal Peor, and if his passions were aroused, then fertility would come uh, uh, to the land. So all kinds of immoral practices were employed in the worship of Chemosh in order that uh, fertility would result. Kyle, in his commentary, says, women and virgins prostituted themselves, gave themselves up to immorality in honor of the false god. But more than that, Not only did they use immorality in the worship of this God, but they also engaged in child sacrifice. In 2 Kings 3, 26 and 27, we're told that when the people of God were attacking Moab, the king of Moab sacrificed his son to placate Chemosh, this false God. So in times of distress... In times of national uncertainty, it wasn't unusual for the worshippers of Chemosh to offer their own children in sacrifice. Now that's the background that both Orpah and Ruth grew up in. A people who were dedicated and given over to the worship of Chemosh. They undoubtedly, as girls growing up, had witnessed that immorality at the shrines. They maybe even themselves had prostituted themselves in the worship of this God and had seen their baby brothers offered in sacrifice. The picture given to us of the modern-day anthropologist of the happy aborigine living in idyllic forest, prancing around naked in a state of uh, innocence, is utter nonsense. Ruth and and Orpah grew up in a, a moral cesspool. But that's not the end of the story. Because the text indicates that these women had at least externally abandoned the worship of Chemosh and attached it, attached themselves to Israel's God. Look at verse 15. Uh, uh, when Naomi is using Orpah's return to pressurize Ruth to return also. And she, verse 15, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go back with her. Now, the implication here is that if if uh, Naomi's urging these two girls to back to that religion, that they in some way had left that religion, that they had broken with their gods. Both Orpah and Ruth had forsaken the gods of their childhood, a professed allegiance, at least externally, to Jehovah, and uh, embraced, uh, to some extent, uh, the true religion and worship of Jehovah. More than that, 
it seems that they, it wasn't just simply a, an exter- external nominal acknowledgement of Jehovah, but they were acquainted in some way about the law. If you, if you look at verses 12 and 13, this strange thing that uh, Naomi says to them, uh, the girls urging them to return, she says, turn back my daughters, go your way, for I am old, too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now that seems a very strange thing to say to these two, two um, women, these two daughters-in-law, of of Naomi. But what Naomi is doing is quoting the Leverite law that God had made provision in Deuteronomy 25 that if a brother died, his brother could father a child uh, so that the name wouldn't be extinguished from Israel. And you see, the fact that that um, Naomi quotes this Leverite law, this law from Deuteronomy 25, indicates that the girls were at least familiar with it, that they, to some degree, had been instructed in the law of God. So let's think of these two, two women. They had been exposed to true religion. They had broken with paganism. And they had been instructed in the law of God. They had uh, uh, forsaken the God of their fathers and attached themselves, at least externally, to the God of Israel. Yet one arrived in Judah and one went back, went back to her people and her gods. Orpah's return to Moab was clearly the turning of her back on the God that she had professed. And the sobering thing is that unless Orpah later repented, which we have no evidence of because she's mentioned nowhere else in the Bible, she lost her soul for all eternity. For all eternity. Remember Jesus said, to whom much is given, much will be required. There is a greater punishment waiting for those who have received greater light. Matthew Henry says those who perish with the gospel ringing in their ears perish with a vengeance. Remember Jesus said to those who received the light of his ministry and yet fail to repent, but I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Why is that? Sodom with all its its perversions. Why why would it be more bearable for Sodom? Because these people rejected the light. They rejected the Lord Jesus. They rejected the greater truth. The privileges that they shared. The second thing I want you to notice is the test they face. Why did Orpah return? Why did she abandon her faith in Yahweh and return to the evil practices of Chemosh? Well, it seems that certain pressures were brought to bear both on Orpah and Ruth. Orpah yielded to those pressures, but Ruth, with adamant resolution, remained firm 
and faithful and accompanied Naomi to Judah. Now, what were those pressures? Well, I would suggest to you three. First of all, the trials of the past. Look at what Naomi says in verse 13. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Look what uh, she says in, in verse 20 when she returns uh, to Bethlehem. She says to the woman of Bethlehem, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Here is Naomi. She's arriving back in Bethlehem. The years have been harsh. Life has been hard. And the woman expressed surprise. Is this Naomi? It's not just that she was aged. She was worn and withered with the trials of life. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Moffat, in his translation, tries to bring out a bit of the wordplay that's going on here in the original. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has marred me. That the explanation for her hardships and difficulties lies not in chance, misfortune, or luck, but the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, she says. That was no exaggeration. She had gone to Moab as a wealthy woman. She came back empty. She had gone to Moab as a wife. She came back as a widow. She had gone to Moab as a mother. And she came back grieving over the loss of her two boys. And and who was responsible for this? Verse 13, the Lord's hand, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The verb there that's translated gone out in verse 13 is used of an army going out with hostile intent. The Lord has attacked me. Yahweh is my enemy. Now think of of those words and the influence of Naomi upon these two young women. Since leaving the people of God and their idols and attaching themselves at least externally to the true and living God, they had witnessed but nothing but hardship, heartache, and heartbreak. Their father-in-law had died. Their two husbands had died. Naomi was brought to the point of financial ruin. Is that the way you treat your people, Yahweh? Is that the way you show love to them? Is that the way you preserve them and provide for them? No health, wealth, and prosperity gospel here. Naomi says, stay away from me. God's fighting against me. You don't want to be around me. That may have been a factor uh, in Ruth and Orpah, or at least in Orpah, returning because of the trials of the past. She was already hesitating, and Naomi's pleas uh, made her finally decide. Now, I've met people like that. My own family's like that. Um, we weren't a, a Christian family, but we were kind of semi-religious and had a nominal church attachment until my mother died. And when my mother died, the family just turned their back and all things to do with Christianity. They, they blame God for the, the misfortune that had come against it. You see, trials and difficulties can be a catalyst for revealing what's truly in our heart. 
Because the, the, the true Christian in desperation is driven to God and the, the, the false professor is driven from God in bitterness. You remember Paul's words in Romans 8, by his spirit we cry, Abba, Father. And he's dealing with the evidences of, of saving faith. How do you know if you're a Christian? That by his spirit you cry, Abba, Father. And the emphasis there is on the cry. It's a, it's a word of pain and torment that out of your suffering and pain you actually cry to God. You're driven to God in prayer. How do you face the trials of life? It, the trials of life often reveal what's truly in the heart. The trials of the past, the pressure of the present. Notice how Naomi puts pressure on both Ruth and Orpah. Twice with Orpah and three times with Ruth. Verse 8, go return each of you to her mother's house. Verse 11, turn back my daughters, why will you go back with me? And then in verse 15 she uses this added pressure of Orpah's return uh, with with Ruth, verse 15, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, why would Naomi do such a thing? Why quench the desire in the hearts of these two girls for spiritual reality? Should she not bring them on with encouragements rather than try and send them back with discouragements? Should she not have said to them, forget your mother and remember your maker? Care not for your father who conceived you, but remember the God who created you. Let the dead, spiritually the dead, bury their own dead and attach yourself to those who are spiritually alive. Why did Naomi act in such a way? Why would a daughter of Jerusalem, why would a, a daughter of Abraham encourage these girls to go back to false gods and false religion? One commentator suggests that Naomi didn't want to take them back to Bethlehem because she was too ashamed. Because they were evidence of Elimelech's disobedience, that she was trying to cover her sin. Now, of that we can't be sure, but certainly she she herself must be at a low spiritual ebb at this point because she's certainly bitter against the God of Israel and she's encouraging these girls to uh, abandon Yahweh. Now, if Naomi was the one who had introduced her daughters-in-law to Yahweh, if she was the one who had instructed them in the law and this Leverite law, that was a, undoubtedly a tremendous pressure on Ruth and Orpah. Naomi had a bad testimony and, and was a bad influence upon Orpah and her return. But that doesn't excuse Orpah because Ruth remained faithful. I've met professing Christians who have who've gone back, or people who have been brought up in Christian homes who have uh, abandoned the faith. And the excuse often is given, the testimony of other Christians. I had a teenager in Australia, and his father was an elder in, in, in the house, and he said to me he certainly wasn't an elder in the home. Others I've, uh, I have met have said, you know, you're treated better by the world than you are by the church. And there are many professing Christians who have terrible testimonies. But that doesn't excuse unbelief. 
You are responsible and accountable before God for yourself. Ruth was under the same pressure, and yet she remained faithful and with dogged determination followed Naomi in spite of Naomi's protests all the way to the land of Judah. Trials of the past, the pressure of the present. Thirdly, the fear of the future. The difficulties that both Ruth and Orpah encountered not only came from the past, the present, but also the future. We have already mentioned Naomi's allusion to the Leverite law in verses 11 to 13. This Leverite law stated that a brother would provide an heir for his dead brother so the family's name wouldn't be extinguished. Now, what Naomi in verses 11 to 13 is saying is this. I'm too old to have a son. And even if it was possible that I conceived tonight... There's no guarantee that this child's going to be a girl or a boy. And if it is a boy, are you going to wait that long until he grows up and can provide you with an heir? So what she's saying is this, that your chances of finding a a husband in Judah are zilch. No one's going to marry a Moabite. And there's no way that I can provide a husband for you. She says in verse 9, The Lord grant that you might find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Your only chance of getting a husband is in Moab. No one in Judah will marry you, and I can't provide a son for you. As I've already mentioned, widows in the ancient Near East were extremely vulnerable, and it was true that that, uh, Israel made provision Uh, in their laws for widows, but other countries didn't. And fear gripped Orpah's heart, and she decided to turn back to Moab. And thousands of souls perish on this rock, the rock of fear. Young person says, what will my friends say? People are petrified about how their family would ra- will react. Jesus said in Luke fourteen twenty six, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Fear and the consequences of fear can paralyze us in following after Christ, in following after God. These difficulties were great, and we don't want to minimize them in any way, but let me remind you that Ruth overcame these one by one and remained faithful even when Orpah turned back. The difficulties that engulfed them, the trials of the past, the pressure of the present, the fear of the future, so the privileges they shared, The test they faced and then the choice that they made. The choices that Orpah and Ruth made on the road as they traveled with their their mother-in-law revealed the true condition of their hearts. In verse 14 we're told, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah went back to her family, back to her country, back uh, to, uh, most significantly, most disturbingly, back to her God. She put her hand to the plow and she looked back and she was not fit for the kingdom of heaven. 
And that fatal decision revealed the true condition of her heart, that Moab was in her heart and her heart was in Moab. Now, a true believer, as we know, can never be lost. No one can ever snatch us from his hand. And many who profess faith are not true believers. And that false profession is often revealed in their abandonment of the gospel and their abandonment of their faith and the going back to their former practices. Now, we we may be tempted to feel a bit of... uh, Sympathy for Orpah, because she was under considerable pressure. The trials of the past, Naomi yapping at her in the present, fear of the future. But yet Ruth didn't turn back. She persevered. She clung to her her mother-in-law in spite of the difficulties. Now notice what Ruth says to Naomi in verses 16 to 18. Uh, during the Second World War, before America got involved, Winston Churchill had a dinner with with um, uh, the Secretary of State uh, from America, and he was Winston Churchill was putting pressure on uh, the Secretary of State to get involved in, in the war, and uh, uh, the American Secretary of State just wrote out Ruth chapter one, uh, sixteen and seventeen on a piece of paper and passed it up the table. The sad thing is, uh, Winston Churchill knew what these words were, but I'm not sure many politicians would know them today. So look at verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also if anything but death separates me from you. These are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. Stop pestering me, she says to Naomi. I'm going back and that's final. And in a series of six statements, she underscores her love and loyalty for Naomi and her love and loyalty for Yahweh. Where you go, I will go. You're going to Judah, I'm going to Judah. Forget the prospect of a husband. That doesn't matter to me. I'm still going to Judah. Where you stay, I will stay. It was at least ten years when uh, Elimelech had abandoned his house and perhaps a small farm. The house probably lay in ruins, uh, the, the farm uncultivated. But your home, she says, is going to be my home. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. I'm turning my back on my mother and father, my family, my kith and kin, my people, and I'm adopting God's people as my people. Your God will be my God. This is the, the, the crux. It's not simply out of a loyalty to Naomi that she returns, but a loyalty to Yahweh. She's not going to keep her idols in the cupboard discreetly and every now and then bring them out and worship Chemosh. No, her God, Naomi's God, would be her God. Where you die, I will die. Now that wasn't insignificant because Naomi was a much older woman and in all likelihood she would die first. And when when Naomi died, Ruth wasn't going to toddle back to, to Moab She was going to stay. This was her choice. She was going to put her roots down, even if Naomi died 20 or 30 years 
earlier. She was determined to persevere in her faith. And finally, where Naomi was buried, there she would be buried. You see something of the determination that distinguished Ruth from Orpah. No matter what it took, no matter what obstacles stood in her way, she was determined to follow after Yahweh. She's going to a strange land, no problem. No prospect of finding a husband, no problem. Exposed to the dangers and and vulnerability of widowhood in the ancient uh, Near East, no problem. The poor example of Naomi didn't matter. The trials and dark providences that had beset them as a family, no problem. None of these stood between her and her God. Do you see that determination? In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12, uh, Jesus says, since the days of John the Baptist, the uh, kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold uh, upon it. Violent men lay hold upon it. And that can be taken in two ways, that the kingdom of God is advancing and it's always been persecuted, or that the kingdom of God is advancing and people of violence, people of determination, People of grit lay hold upon it. It's people who display this kind of determination that lay hold of the kingdom of God, that you enter the kingdom of God by force, not by indifference. The kingdom of God is not for weaklings, waverers, and wimps. It takes vigorous people to lay hold of the kingdom, people who are determined. Jonathan Edwards has a great sermon entitled, Taking the Kingdom by Force. And if you're all passive and indifferent and, oh, I don't know if it's true or not, you're never going to enter the kingdom. It's violent men who lay hold of the kingdom. It's people who have determination and grit to get right with God that lay hold of the kingdom. That if anyone can be saved, I will be saved. If sin can be washed away, my sin can be washed away. If I can be brought right into a relationship with God, I will be brought into a relationship with God. That's the kind of determination that's needed and displayed to enter the kingdom. You don't know my friends. What about your friends compared to knowing the best friend of all? You don't know how my family would react. What is that compared to being brought into the family of God? I might be put out of my home. What does that matter compared to having an eternal home in heaven? You don't know the passions and the sins that I wrestle with. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Violent determination and grit is what's needed to enter the kingdom. That you say to yourself, if anyone uh, can come to Christ, I will come to Christ. Nothing, nothing will separate me from him. And so I'm asking you then this morning, are are you a Christian, a true Christian, that will uh, stand the test of time and the trials of life and the bad testimonies of other people and that you have this 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 wholehearted determination to go on with God, to come to Christ and to go on with God. That's what's needed when it comes to being a citizen of the kingdom.
We're going to finish our service this morning with um, the song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. And I have a little confession to make. I didn't like that song. I didn't like that song because it had Arminian undertones. And that simply means that it always seemed to me that that uh, salvation depended upon the, division, uh, the decision of the individual. And we know that salvation is ultimately of, of the Lord. So I didn't like that song until I understood the background to that psalm. There were American missionaries who went to northeast India and um, uh, they went to uh, an area that was made up of very um, aggressive and violent tribes that were separated from each other and they they, um, counted their manliness or assessed their manliness by the number of heads that they they could uh, collect from the the other tribes, and these missionaries went in preaching the gospel. There wasn't much reaction in this particular village, but one man was converted, his two boys, and his wife. They were all all converted, and the chief of the village wasn't wasn't very happy with them, and uh, he and they were brought before him, and they asked him to renounce his faith. And uh, he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And then they killed with arrows the two boys. And they asked him again, uh, would he uh, deny his faith? And he said, though, no, none, no, though none go with me, yet still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. And they put his wife to death. He said, the world behind me. Uh, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. Then they killed him. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. That's the grit. That's the determination. That's the attitude that's needed. Since the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God has been Forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold.